0: Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Dave Weiner has been called the godfather of a lot of things. Um, the godfather of blogging, godfather of podcasting, uh, you know, one of the key people involved in the development of RSS. But as you'll hear in this uh, great and wide-ranging chat, Dave Weiner is just a software developer who has never stopped tinkering, never lost his interest in coming up with new tools and new technologies. Dave was kind enough to sit down and go over his whole career from the very earliest days of the PC era to the present day. So please enjoy one of my all-time favorite episodes, this conversation with Dave Weiner. Dave Weiner, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thanks, Brian. Nice to be here. Now, I believe that you're a New York
1: native. You were, you were born in Brooklyn? No, I was not born in Brooklyn. I hear that all the time and it's- Damn Wikipedia. I'm from, yeah, Wikipedia says that. Wikipedia says a lot of things that end up becoming true. I you can't tell you how many conversations I've had where people say, well, you know, you're a Brooklyn kid, but I'm not, I'm a, from Queens. And, uh, from, and, and people from Queens don't particularly like being thought of as from Brooklyn. It's kind of like Mets fans don't like Yankees fans especially this time of year.
0: But the, uh, so you're, you're growing up in, in Queens in the, in the 60s and 70s, so that's mm-hmm. uh, sort of people have this nostalgia for that that was the, the great period to, to come oh, up in New York. I
1: think that it was a mixed thing. I mean, New York wasn't very safe then. It was very dirty. The city went bankrupt shortly after that period. On the other hand, uh, you know, it was one of the two cultural centers for hippies and music and drugs, and you know, the Vietnam War was a huge thing at the time. Um, so there was a lot of protests, and you know, things were really busy. <laughs> and it was, and, and it was a good time to be a kid here, actually. And uh, things were different then. Kids had more or less had the run of the city. You know, but adults uh, weren't like as worried today as they were. I was going to say, I,
0: kids have no freedom
1: <laughs> I know. anywhere There are anymore. theories about, actually, uh, Planet Money podcast had a really good explanation for why that is. It's just, we're all hearing all the terrible stories that we'd never heard before. And so we can project onto the world and think, okay, the world's a lot more dangerous. In fact, in New York, is a lot safer today than it was then. I mean, I remember not, uh, you know, wanting, not feeling comfortable being a, alone in part of the Central Park. And today, it, it just simply wouldn't cross my mind. It's, right. it's just perfectly safe, so that's great.
0: I mean, even when I moved here in the late 90s, uh, Hell's Kitchen was a place where you didn't go. You really? Know? Yeah, yeah, really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. I felt like that, where I was told huh. it was a place I say. Uh, where with.
1: did you come from?
0: Uh, Florida. For, so where yeah. in Florida? Fort Myers. Okay. I got it. Yeah. 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 Um, but uh, and then and then I lived in Hell's Hell's Kitchen subsequently.
1: to so. I thought Hell's. I mean, Hell's Kitchen is a very nice place to live.
0: Yeah, yeah I, I agree. Did, yeah. A Thai restaurant on every corner. Um, so, you, you, what do you initially go
1: to school for? College. College? Well, it's, you know, I uh, I flunked out of high school. And so it was, I had to sort of build myself back up. So when college first, I spent a year at Lehman College in New York. Uh, I got really serious mm-hmm. about um, about school because I saw what life would be like without an education. I got to see that at age 16. So, um, and I got very lucky uh, at Lehman. I I was always terrible at math, and uh, and but I had to take a math class, and um, I had a teacher who was very patient. And actually, it turns out I have a fair amount of aptitude for it. And so we were like kind of like each other's gift. Uh, and so I got into math, and then I went to Tulane University in New Orleans um and uh and i was a math major so one of my favorite which was the most bizarre thing for me to ever do really seriously i why never... did you want to do it well because of that because, because i was like, because i was a kid uh-huh. and kids do things like that <laughs> it's like oh wow i'll just be a math major because what did your parents want you to be I think my parents had more or less decided if I, if I was going to get a college education, that was good enough for them. <laughs> I don't think, they didn't weigh in too much. Although my father worked at IBM, uh, and he was always saying, you know, you got to learn how to use uh, program computers because it's the way of the future. Of course, he was right about that, you know. So, so one of my favorite
0: questions is, uh, tell me your, your first computer but you would come from a time when there's not PCs yet, no, so your, no. your first encounters well, with computers... Well, you know,
1: truthfully, there actually were PCs, but they were, like, right. nobody knew about them. Right. Uh, the my first things. computer was uh, IBM 7044 mainframe that you programmed with punch cards, and uh, I programmed in Fortran, which is a perfectly awful language, but, you know, a remarkable language, of course, right. given the time it was, and... Uh, I don't know. It was a fairly miserable experience programming on punch cards, but I, I sort of had a sense that this was something that I liked to do. Actually, I really liked to do it. Um, so when I found out you could become a computer science uh, major or grad student, I thought, "Wow, that's like earning a degree playing video games, you know, or <laughs> pinball." There right. weren't any video games, but it was like it was like play for me. And so, so that's why uh,
0: then you go to. Uh, University
1: of Wisconsin right and um, there we had Unix Mm. and we had the internet we went I went all the way straight well actually I I worked in New York in the timesharing business for Mm. about six months um, after graduating and that that was a really good experience it was interactive Uh, we had terminals Mm. that were portable that had handles on them Mm. so I could take it was incredible I blew my friends away with this I could every Every weekend, I would bring a terminal back with me. And you put an acoustic coupler in the back of the computer, a terminal, and you hook up with a computer. You could program the thing in BASIC, and it was like, wow, you know, this is totally the wave of the future. And you could see where things were going to happen, mm-hmm. and uh, so it was exciting. And then at Wisconsin, uh, um, we had, you know, we had the internet. It was like uh, we had collaboration tools. We had networking on our on the campus. Uh, I mean, this was 1976, 77. This was like, I went from the dark ages. Well, Rapid Data, which was the timesharing company, was not dark ages, but uh, Tulane at the time certainly was. I'm sure Tulane is a, has a fine computer, computer facility today. So, so, do you get a job, or what, is
0: there an intermediate step between yeah, you becoming an? I Never entrepreneur? got a job. No, I,
1: no, I've <laughs> <laughs> never Okay, a job. well, so so
0: then how how does how does well, Visitech start? Like how
1: z-text wow uh well okay that's your first company right no your your first job that well okay let me just try to do this very quickly because it's like i said when you know we we emailed about this i said you know maybe one sentence for each five years because it's been a lot of years (laughs) yeah um now the the, uh, i was looking for a product when i was grad school i wanted to try to find a product that i could make that nobody else had made And uh, I was talking with a friend of mine who was a LISP programmer, and he told me about the editors that they had that understood structure. They did a thing called function elision, which meant that if you point at a function and say, I want to hide all the details in this function, Mm -hmm. you can do that. And I thought, wow, that's a really great idea. And I wanted to know if if there was anything like that for C or for Pascal. Those are the two languages I was using. There was absolutely nothing like it. And I said, okay, cool, that's what I'm going to make. And so I made uh, a, a structural program editor. It understood uh, the structure of the program, and you could expand and collapse, and you could reorganize according to the structure. Those are two basic things. Mm-hmm. And it really, today, it's still, I mean, that was a, those are very, very simple but very basic and important concept. Uh, and so I'm, I showed it to my roommates. I lived in a house with nine roommates in, on Wilson Street in Madison. And, um, and they were like English majors, agriculture majors, uh, ge- geology, geography, stuff like that. No, com- I was the only computer guy in there. And they all said, well, that's great. I, I like to use that. And I said, no, well, you can't use it. This is like for programmers. Mm-hmm. But that took me, that said, oh, wow. You know, it's like programmers will always do this. they always say no can't be done at Mm -hmm. first. And then, if you think about it, maybe there's actually an idea there, you know? And it was. And I said, wow, what if I just take the language out of it? What if I just make it so that it's a way for people to work on their ideas on a computer screen? And organize thoughts and plan out. And and that ended up being my life for, for actually for the
0: rest of my life, really, And actually, I feel like, and we can get into this a lot, but like, so, The
1: entrepreneurial impulse
0: is just, this is a tool that I want to
1: use myself. I'm not an entrepreneur. You see, that's the thing. I I, I was miscast as an entrepreneur. I'm totally not an entrepreneur. But uh, that came later. I mean, uh, I was talking with people. This was was still in Madison. I got my degree. I hung out in Madison for another year, I guess. Um, And and, uh, I got my own personal computer. It was a Chromemco Z2D with Mm. 8-inch floppy drives. And uh, it was... It was incredible. I mean, just having your own computer. It, you know, the thing about using a shared computer, and I actually had my own computer at Wisconsin, to be fair. Uh, they, uh, they had spare PDP-11s sitting around and a grad student could, you know, usurp one and uh, just use it because there was so much computing capacity. But actually having one in my living room, and it made no noise. It was just silent. Cool. And uh, every bit of the memory and all the CPU power, it all belonged to me. And mm-hmm. it was like incredible thing to have. And so I made two products. And one was I, I, I made the outliner, tried to make it so that something that everybody could use and you know was debugged and all this. So I also made a, a simple relational database. And uh, then I went to California because I'd been talking with people, uh, at various different places. And I noticed in the magazines all the cities, all the towns sort of grouped up around the same place, like, you know, Sunnyvale, mm-hmm. Woodside, and, and Palo Alto. These all have these wonderfully romantic names. I had Mountain View. I thought, oh, wow, you're looking at It must be like a Swiss mountain town with <laughs> ski lifts and stuff, and the rich people live up there and they look down on. Well, I finally got there. It was nothing like that right. at all. <laughs> Someone's listening in Mountain View right now. It was, looking out the I lived in Mountain View don't <laughs> yeah. I And mean, it's like, no, it's like Northern Boulevard in Queens. It's mm-hmm. like suburbia as far as the eye can see. I remember when I first got there, I drove around and I said, where is Silicon Valley? I can't find it. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out that I, uh, I ended up, well, it's, anyway, I'm not going to skip that story, but. Go ahead. What you want to? Well, let's talk about this. This. So it's it. You're carrying through this outliner idea. Well, yeah. So I ended up. I should say. So I. My first stop was Apple, and Apple at the time, had uh, was like I don't know 100 employees, mm-hmm. and. Uh, what year are we here? Seventy nine. Okay. The the fall of seventy nine, and I met with Steve Jobs, and you could do that, you know, mm-hmm. you could cold call Apple and say I got a product, and you know I'd like to show it to you. I think. It belongs on your computers and so forth. And I showed him both products, the outliner and the database. he said he wanted the database. And I said, you're crazy. (laughs) That's stupid. The database wouldn't even work on your computer because you only got 140K on your floppy drive. In other words, I was like really stupid. I should have sold him the database, Mm -hmm. right? I said, you want the database? That's cool. Let's do it, you know. Apple stock at that point would have been, you know, it's amazing to think how much money that would have been worth. Right. So um, I said, well, where should, do you have any suggestions? He said, well, I don't want the outliner. It looks like a piece of shit. (laughs) So he's just, we're, we're, by the way, the same age. born both born in 1955, Mm -hmm. and just as stubborn and arrogant and stupid about interpersonal relationships. had no idea. So he said, they just turned down another product. Why don't you go talk to them? And it was VisiCalc. And VisiCalc was like, uh, turned out, well, I went to see them I saw the demo and I felt like I was looking at God. It was like a profound experience. I'd never seen anything like it. The idea of a a bar cursor that you moved with the cursor keys. So, you know, I was accustomed to. You'd feel like you're pointing at things, but you're pointing here and they're out there, right? You know, they're far, you know, far away. But with this approach, you feel like you're in it, mm. and. um the direct manipulation of the data—it's yeah, not removed from you at all, right? But at that point, there were no words for it. It mm-hmm. was just like you know, wow—that's the way all software is going to be—is mm-hmm. what I what I thought. And they and they wanted an outliner, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. This was person. There was like there was the guys that were doing the software. They were in Cambridge. and I hadn't met them yet. I know them both very well now. Mm-hmm. Bob Frankston, Dan Berkeley. This was Dan filestra at Personal Software, and he was actually looking for an outliner, and. It's like I have never in my life since then found anybody looking for an outline. <laughs> but yet we were both there at the same time. So we did a deal, and, uh, and I became an author, uh, which was uh, kind of not a great model for it. But it's my hope... My goal Explain that in the sense that you get... It was an author deal. It was like the kind of deal that a a book writer, get an author gets with a publisher. That was their residuals or whatever. Yeah, you get an advance Uh and you get royalties. Uh, The problem with that approach was software and books aren't the same thing. And what you want is you want your products. If you're going to have five products in your product line, you want them all to work together. You want them to share common features. You want, and in in order to do that, the programmers have to work with each other, and um, and. You know, I mean, I, they're sweet guys, and you know, and we nobody knew what we were doing, but they didn't want to work with me because mm. uh, because they were paying all the bills. There was a lot of resentment, you know, that personal software was making a shitload of money off of what they were doing, and they didn't feel that they were earning it, and whatever, and they felt that all these other products, they even told me this: "It's like we we don't have any interest in you succeeding with your product." I said, "That's." And I knew this. I said, this, is the ro- this is wrong, this is why it isn't going to work. Uh, years later, I saw a company called Ashton Tate that uh, had a big product called DBase, and they signed a deal to do, uh, with a bunch of developers to do a product called Framework, which was actually a competitor of, well, it's a long story. I, you know, Think Tank eventually was my product. I started uh-huh. my own company, and they did it differently. They shared stock amongst the developers. It wasn't royalties. So if Framework did well, the Dbase guy made a shitload of money and, and vice versa. So they had weird situations where they would just give each other the source code to their programs. This would have never happened in personal software. And uh, so you know, I, I decided to deal with them, it was all great, and then the company grew like a weed. Uh-huh. And I was very late shipping my, uh, delivering our product because I had uh, totally underestimated how much work it was to do the visualization to what you call direct manipulation. Mm -hmm. To me it looked simple and it was anything but simple. It was, and plus this was on the Apple II and the Apple II really only had 48K of memory available for apps and 48, this was actually a 256K program it turns out. When I finally built it on the IBM PC years later without any of the crazy machinations I had to do to make it fit into 48K, uh, the thing just was 256 <laughs> yeah, yeah. so, you know, this was, uh, anyway. So but it, they, w-
0: it was successful on the Apple II.
1: No. My product? Yeah. No. Oh, no. What about the, the IBM PC version? No, not really. Okay. No, it wasn't. The thing was is that we, uh, we were too late to both platforms, huh. okay? So, you know, VisiCalc sold great on the Apple II, uh, both because it was a great product, which it was, but also because there was no software for the Apple II, and so they they filled both niches. It was like great product, and now there's software. Mm-hmm. Everything up to that point on the Apple II was you know use Basic to write your own program. It right. was like you know learn how to program a computer was the product that they were selling. Right. And all of a sudden now it could be sold to accountants and. Um, yeah, I don't, you know computers. what? We
0: should underline that. I don't think a lot of people appreciate that. Like, As, as late as, like, 82, 83, you get a computer and you get languages for it because the idea is is you're going to make your own apps. That's right.
1: Them. But then what changes... No, this was a revolutionary yeah. idea. It was called shrimp wrap software, and the personal software guys got it, and they blazed that trail, and they don't get enough credit for it mm-hmm. because, you know, when you saw VisiCalc was actually a thing you could hold. It, was a, it had a book that... The, the docs for that product were you could they were in English, they were well written <laughs> whoever heard of documentation for a program that a human being can read, I mean these were all new, completely new ideas you know uh, and so I don't know uh, I ended up getting kicked out because uh, they, uh, well and it made sense actually because I was very late and they were no longer in the software author software publishing business they were in the VisiCount business mm. <laughs> It's a very big difference you know? right. in other words they, they had other titles but none of them produced the revenue and they but you know so long, they ended up trying to diversify because they were getting killed by the royalties they were paying to software arts uh, it was a mess they blew the, the company blew up all right well then so that's totally blew up
0: Let's go to, but you... Then I started living video tech. Right. So you, my own company, yeah. Despite this, it wasn't a success in your words. You're, you're, you're like, this is for me. Well, I'm this was keep-
1: not... No, the success... Yeah, okay. So we had an Apple II product, and we had an IBM PC. Mm-hmm. We were too late with the IBM PC product too, mm-hmm. as well. And, um, but I got a great review for the Apple II product in InfoWorld. It was a straight for excellence, Before that, I got a review in the New York Times, Uh and the New York Times had just started reviewing software. This was like one of the first products they ever reviewed. I looked it
0: up yesterday to research it. It was
1: incredible. It was like, this product walks on water. Everybody should get this thing. It's unbelievable. I can't believe... I mean, it was like, wow. And I have to say that when that review came out, um, I was out of money. Mm -hmm. I was broke. And... um, and the next thing, I was at, at a computer trade show, the National Computer Conference, down in Anaheim, I think, Southern California somewhere. And um, I was—I had airfare to go back home, and then I would have to get a job. And at the conference, the New York Times review comes out, and I went to a copy machine. I made like 50 copies of it. And I went to every reporter I could find and gave it to them. And I could never get their attention. That got their attention. Mm-hmm. I remember. The marveling at this idea that as I turn around they're still reading it <laughs> they're still reading the review Well, because that's also like you're saying in a
0: day when the fact that the New York Times is talking about computer software oh it's like one of these
1: you know, I'm getting goosebumps you see uh-huh. Seriously? yeah yeah my no, I, up on yes, my arm. yeah it's because it because people take for granted things that uh, that we experienced you know I mean it was that was also well anyway we don't have time to go into all the details but after that we got a whole bunch of reviews from all those other, and that attracted angel investors we poured a lot of money into selling the product when we hit success well that we had a Mac product we had the first Mac one of the very first commercial software products for the Mac Think Tank 128 came out in like May of 1984 we got seated with the Mac uh, in September of 83 which was about four months before release and uh, The thing that happened there was that the, and I was the CEO of the company, and I was the CEO of the company for like three years, and it was bad, I was not a good CEO, in my opinion, but I did the job, (laughs) and um, the thing that was weird about it was, well, first of all, the Mac had this pipe fill, meaning that they sold a lot of product to retail to put in stores and stuff, and a certain number of total zealots bought it, and then it failed. Mm. It was a failed product. By the middle of mm. eighty four, there was like no sales in Mac. And um but what it happened was really odd. That's when our PC product started selling. Mm. Because we were getting all this publicity and recognition. They were buying the Mac product because they had nothing to sell on the Mac. So we were now at that point like Visicock was on the Apple II. We were selling simply because it was software. Mm-hmm. It was something you could put on the computer. Uh. That... 85. It was a terrible year for the Mac. In January of '86, they shipped the Mac Plus, and that was when the boom started. And it's like you know, people think you know, closed systems don't matter. That was the the, the uh, that was the moral of the story for the Mac. In '86, Jobs had left, mm-hmm. uh, and they did the things Jobs wouldn't let them do. They put a, cursor keys on it. It had a bus. It had uh, called SCSI. SCSI. And it had more memory. I think it had a megabyte of memory, but the most important thing was it was expandable. You could add more stuff to it. And it desperately needed more resources. And, uh, And I think that a lot of the reason the Mac succeeded was, I mean, it had a really beautiful user interface. And I remember first seeing that. It was another one of those this is God type experiences. When I first saw the Mac, it was like, I wasn't prepared for it. I had an idea of roughly what it would be like, you know, because the stories had leaked. Right. But the whole gestalt of it, it didn't, you know. uh, But I think that a lot of the reason why it succeeded was simply that it could handle much more memory than the PC could. PC at that time, by 84, uh, was, uh, we called it Ram Cram. Mm. And it basically, Lotus filled up, uh, Lotus, the successor to VisiCalc, which was also done by one of the personal software people. Mm-hmm. It was all a little incestuous business at that point. Everybody knew everybody and, you know, whatever. Uh, Mitch and Dan were friends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it didn't matter. Um, and so Lotus was filling up all the memory. There was no memory for anything else. Uh, along comes the Mac. The Mac doesn't have an upper, mem- uh, uh, upper bound on memory that anybody can see. It has address, like 32, uh, 32-bit address space, so it could go anywhere. So, the,
0: what you ride is the success of the Macintosh line yes. later into the 80s. Yes, then we
1: came out with a product called More right. in 86. Um, if, if we, we can believe see, Wikipedia. Yeah, no, Wikipedia's right about that one, I think, if that's what they say. And this was a case of really hitting the window. Okay. okay. And that, uh, because 85 had been such a terrible year for the Mac, all kinds of Mac companies went out of business. We didn't go out of business because we had a PC product that was keeping us floating and we shipped a really kick ass product. More was like everybody still, when I see people, it's most likely what they, you know, oh yeah, yeah, RSS, blah, blah, blah. blah. But more users are really rabid. <laughs> they loved that product and it was, we were, we just hit that window perfectly. And, but we, you know, that's the good news. The bad news is that we were, we, were, uh, we needed a bailout from Apple to be able to make it to that. We were totally... We were, we were hurting a lot, too, because of uh, what had gone on in, in other markets. Or, you know, long story. So it,
0: it's at this point that you sell yeah. to Symantec. Right. Um, but, again, you, you, you claim to me that you're not an entrepreneur, but, again, <laughs> you right. turn around and... How do we get to Frontier? You know, and yeah, but that's not
1: me being an entrepreneur. That's me being a software developer. <laughs> that's you being a
0: tinkerer that wants to create things that you want to use. This ain't. That's not tinkering. Before, Frontier is
1: not tinkering. Frontier. Tell me what Frontier. Frontier is, is an edifice. It's big. It's it's uh, it's. I don't know. It's not tinkering. That's for sure. Uh, Frontier. Well, okay. Um, that's the real gear shift. Yeah. Uh, well, okay, so if you go back to when I was a student at Wisconsin. That was the idea, right? And mm-hmm. I want to make a program editor that understands structure. Mm-hmm. I never didn't want to do that. In fact, we were tinkering around that. We really were tinkering <laughs> around. Put with, that in your head. No, 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 <laughs> but it's an accurate term of what we were doing yeah. at Living Video Textbooks. Yes. Yeah, yeah. This was sort of like weekend project type stuff. Uh, and I had a dream that we would put a programming language inside of Moore at some point. And, you know, I had dreams about doing a lot of things with more that we never got to do. But, um, but yeah. So the thing was is that um, I loved the Mac, and I had a lot of good relationships, strong relationships with Apple. They, uh, we had helped them. I think we helped them a lot with more. And they certainly, I mean, they made the difference between me having to get a job and being a failure which back then they weren't people weren't going around saying failure is a good thing to do mm. you know failure was like get F- a job failure <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Failure is failure yeah. and uh so um so you know apple then uh, they loved. i don't know we loved each other it was a lot of love going around but then apple got to be a big company but the the idea was this that the mac had the graphic user interface but it didn't have a scripting capability like you know the you know, every other computer, Unix had a great scripting language, uh, PC-DOS, you know, had, uh, M, you know, whatever you want to call it, The IBM PC had BASIC, uh, you know, and I so I asked the question, what would it be like if you had both, if you had both a beautiful graphic user interface and you could program the machine? And you start with that idea, and then you start to, then we started to think about applications as toolkits, uh-huh. say that, okay, so you don't just want to do this for the operating system, you want to do it for the apps as well. So, the apps have their UI, you know, the menu structures and uh, keyboard commands and stuff like that. But they also, for every one of those operations, they also have a verb that you can call from a script. So, that if you find yourself doing the same thing over and over and over again, you can make it an app. And, you know, and then this is no, there's never going to be a market for all the things that, you know, all the sort of niche things that users want, and why not make something so that the users can make their own software? Not every user, but this is what I want to do. I want to crack this nut. And uh, so, but it, we got competed with, uh, it, competed with isn't really the right term, but Apple uh, was funding us. That would be, maybe would be a better term. They were saying that they were gonna be, compete with us, but for years and years they never shipped the product. And every time they showed us what they were doing, I would go back and say, now we have to add more features. And so Frontier became this very big piece of software. It had an object database. It was built around an object database, which is a really nice idea because um, there is no concept, there's no difference between persistent storage and ephemeral storage. So if you, you don't have to load anything from disk. It's just all there. You, know? mm-hmm. you just create names and you, you use them and you can you know store that's that's how you access memory and 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 disk are all the same thing um, and uh, it, it was used outline editor for everything uh, so that you navigate the database with the outliner you write your code with the outline what,
0: what, what you're describing to me is what we would think of as modern editors are no it's, it's still it's still beyond
1: no they, they haven't done this yet in modern editors. okay and they haven't done it in modern languages. I mean, we, I am now working in JavaScript, and uh, and you know, it's, it's a real, things that used to be no trouble at all. Like, I, I added a little feature to my blog this morning uh, that literally would have taken me five minutes to do in Frontier, and it took me most of the morning to do it uh, because the pieces are all scattered all over the place, and uh, you don't have, the thing that we did with Frontier that nobody has done in, you know, modern development environments is we spent three, four years trying to envision what the best development environment and runtime environment would be. We didn't do it iteratively. We didn't do it sort of as just a slight improvement over things that we were already using. And That you can achieve certain kinds of results going one way and other results going a different way, but no, uh, today's development environments are far behind where we were, and yet nobody knows about
0: it. (laughs) Well, is it still because it's this coming back to this idea of the outliner as being?
1: It's it's, the outliner is a big deal, but you know, we talked beforehand. uh You know, I want to bring people up to date. Uh, Outliners are everything, as far as I'm concerned. Please explain. Actually. Okay, Go into more fair enough. But yeah. but the fact that the programming editor is an outliner, uh, that I, I you know, I think that a lot of people would prefer not to. I think they're wrong, but I think that they would prefer not to use an outliner. Explain
0: um, why you think the outliner is so important,
1: and what well, what people are missing. About. Yeah, you see, I thought about that. And, you know, so I I, I complained to you that well never, we're never going to get to the good stuff because <laughs> nobody knows that I've ever done this. You know, they think i RSS and blogging. It's just all cool we could talk about that you know and i can talk about it people will understand that problem with outlining is is that you kind of have to see it if you if you describe it in words you end up waving your hands a lot and um it's a very hard thing to to explain in words but it's like note taking is really about manipulating structures if you ever watch yourself taking notes on something uh you know, you're making lists of things, but you really don't have the ability to revise it. That's the thing. Even on a computer you don't really have that ability. Because it's I mean, you can, you can select text and copy it or cut it and move it to somewhere else. But in an outliner you just point at it and you drag it to the new place you want. And you think about it, your text is on rails. It's it's already set up to be reorganized. That's that's the fundamental thing, is that you've entered it into a system where reorganization is what it does. And so if you're doing a, a product plan or a, even just a complicated uh, trip or you know, you're you trying to communicate what you're working on in, in a work group where these notes have to get updated all the time and you know, so things really do have to move around. Or if you're editing a blog, I mean, you see, I can never do a blog without an outliner, and yet, and that was the early blogs were all done in an outliner mm-hmm. because everybody was using my software to do the blogs, and I gave them an outliner. Mm-hmm. Things really exploded when I said you don't have to use the outliner. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's when we went into the stratosphere on blogging. We should probably go forward. I mean, I yeah. you know, let me just make a suggestion. If yeah. Everybody's intrigued by this, okay, a couple of things: littleoutliner.com. Uh-huh. It's a free thing. You can go ahead and use it, and um, and it has a how-to that shows you how to do the stuff. And if you have questions, send me an email, and I'll, I'm dave.weiner at gmail.com, and I will send you a pointer to place where we can discuss it so we can have a conversation about this. I don't want to try. I thought about it. I don't want to try to explain it in words here. It's not going to work. Okay. Yeah. Um, but thank you for
0: asking. I will... All right, here's, what I'll, here's how I'll transition because... Um, Let's get to the web coming. But first, since you're the first person that I know of that I've spoken to that used uh, C B simulator on CompuServe. Oh yeah. Can you describe for me and for us what C B simulator was like?
1: Oh, it was awesome. <laughs> well explain it to I'm you. A, I, I, wanna... I know. I, you're switching my gears. Yeah, yeah. When I say it's awesome, that means hold on a second, I have to <laughs> I have to swap that segment in. It's like I, um... Because
0: sometimes when I talk to about a website that you can't even get on, you know,
1: the Wayback Machine. I say, tell me what I would see. Like, yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, the the trails are gone; you can't follow them anymore. This is something that pisses me off. We don't do a better job of this stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, see, well, CB Simulator, it's group chat. Right. You've seen it. Right. It exists. I mean, um, it like all these things. The the technology isn't the thing that makes it interesting. It was the cast of characters. Mm. You know, and uh, and 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 it was the social aspect of it. Did uh, you have to know people to connect to them, or was it a true like just get on? No, you didn't have to know them. There were channels. That's there were channels okay. you could go to, and um, you sort of got the idea which ones were interesting channels. Uh, there were also private channels as well, and uh, um, you know, it was like all these things you know we talked about it in the early blogging deals people watching other people watching people watching people watch them watch them you, know, you go back and forth it's like everybody's just watching each other that's all that's actually happening here right cb radio maybe not the first example of that that i've used but at the time it was it was remarkable i mean it was mar- i mean it was just group chat i mean it's like every room had a name and you would see that in the prompt and you would type something and everybody would see that. And we should
0: credit this is on CompuServe. On CompuServe, yeah. yeah.
1: But they also called us the Lonely Hearts Club at CompuServe. They didn't like us. Hmm. They didn't like their users. Yeah. yeah. So, I've gotten that from several So people. companies that don't like their users, this is something you should take note of. If you don't like your users, get in another business because this isn't going to work. <laughs> yeah, This is not going to work. They did not, they didn't respect their users. They I got this too when I was a student in Wisconsin. People thought, Well, Dave, you seem like a really nice guy. Why are you doing computers? I go, Well, because it's they're interesting. Yeah, they're cool. Yeah. Because people can use them to be people. This was something people didn't get, you know? It's like that, that this 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 idea that was a very contra idea back then that, that computers could have any applications for people. Do you know what I get the Nobody sense got that from doing this project now
0: for four years? I, I don't think it occurred to people. Till really late, that computers
1: were great communication tools. No, for me that was it. Right. I knew it right from the beginning. I used to describe it and say there's communication with the big C, communication with the little C, mm-hmm. and little C is the wires, that connect them. Those are wonderful, but it's the, the real thing is the communication with the big C. Mm-hmm. It's people, intellects, sharing ideas with each other. You know, this is like that was the ideal, right? This right. Is, this, it still happens on the internet, even though the internet is being used for fake news and for the Russians to pervert our election and all kinds of crazy things are going to happen. Um, there it, it still is an awful lot of really good stuff happening on the net. So, let's let's do when the web comes
0: around, is that the thing that strikes you about it first? Is this idea of communication, or, or what do you think of... No, I've been
1: working on this for, for a, yeah. couple, a decade and a half by that point, right. and uh, no, what struck me about the web when I first Saw it when it first clicked for me was, oh, this is all the shit that the computer industry has screwed up, and it works. Mm. <laughs> this is like I had been, I, you know, we could spend, I mean, so much frustration on the Mac. They the Mac had every Mac sold after 1986 had networking built into mm-hmm. it. You didn't have to add any cards. Every one of them had it in it. And there was a software stack inside there. You knew it because Apple shipped software that did stuff with that. Mm -hmm. The docs were completely impenetrable. I spent a couple of years trying to figure out how do I make software that runs on top of this communication stack. And I ultimately came to the conclusion that they simply don't want me to do this. That's Mm -hmm. why they made it so difficult. And I and I eventually, you know, it turns out that is I mean, I still don't know for sure, but it seems pretty likely. But that was the miracle of the web, you know. There's nothing to it. Right. <laughs> it. that's the that was the hard idea in the web was where is it? <laughs> it's nowhere. It's nothing. Mm-hmm. It's just a simple protocol. It's like, "Oh, here, let me send you some text." "Okay. Oh, I'll send you back some text." Perfect. It's totally the way the internet uh, It's totally the way communications was meant to be. Had Apple had that philosophy, there'd be no internet. It would all be on Apple hardware. Mm-hmm. 100%. They had everything. And we would have conserved an awful lot of really good technology that ended up getting thrown out because we we left Apple's philosophy, which was make it really easy. I mean, Apple made very, very severe demands on their developers, and that's a good thing. You know, I mean, to make Mac software in, you know, 84 through 90 whatever when when I switched, when I got off, I mean it required a big commitment you had to do undo undo was uh, and nobody knew undo how the fuck do you do undo mm-hmm. sorry it's okay. sorry okay it's people right. actually use it okay yeah how do you do undo well, nobody knew but we had to figure it out because it was in the user interface guidelines you have to do undo and it's like that took a lot of guts to do that and it was a good thing that they did and uh, we threw all that out the web doesn't have undo mm-hmm. you know okay fine but at least that was the miracle. I mean, I was, you know, there's an article, Wired did an article on me years later, and uh, I gave them a quote that I really, really uh, regretted after doing it. I said, I was, about this period, I, said, I was basically a dead software guy. I had nowhere to go. I mm. mean, I had tried to make software that, that really glorified the Macintosh, and Apple wouldn't really let me do it. I mean, that was the conclusion I finally ended up having to come to that I'll make, I mean, deal after deal after deal with them, and every time they threw another hurdle that I had to jump over. I mean, it, it started out being a wonderful relationship, but then they hired a whole bunch of people, and those people didn't want to work with me. So, But on the Internet, we didn't have that problem. Here it was, just really simple protocols, and there was no platform vendor. There was nobody to say, right. you know, we're not trying to crush you, which was what Apple's favorite thing to say to me was, well, we're not trying to crush you. When somebody says they're not trying to crush you, they're trying to crush you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So the web provides
0: this new avenue, like you can bring a thing like Frontier to the web.
1: Well, that wasn't the first thing that I thought of. The first thing I thought of was, um, well, I've got this rolodex full of email addresses. Why don't I think see about like why don't I just like write a script and publish an email g- goes to all that. spam i mean basically mm-hmm. it was spam right but this was before there was, there was spam so and i didn't put spam on it i put ideas on it and it was a phenomenon it was like I, it was like the biggest gusher i ever hit and i've hit, i hit some good gushers before that but this was the ba- big so this
0: is um dave net which is yeah
1: so again yeah.
0: let's pause for a second and describe it's essentially an, uh, a news a newsletter. that You would call out. it a newsletter
1: today, right. yeah, with an archive on the web. With an archive on the
0: web, so that you can. But the other thing is, is that when you send it out, you're not, you're not CCing everybody. You're no, creating little, community in a sense because you can only talk to what ten other
1: people. or Yeah, it was a little trick I played. I just said I'm going to choose a random group of. I think it was like eleven people. I didn't want it to be a round number, and I'll just copy it to eleven random people. Um, and you know some of the emails there would be no particular response to some you know I would say something was really out there or uh, I had some I ran guest pieces and sometimes it was somebody really famous or whatever and um, and that these conversations sometimes would go on for months and it was really fascinating you know it's another social structure right I mean I don't think there are too many I can't think of another thing that's like that today but uh, it was really really cool well and like uh, the Bill Gates versus the Internet. That was the big moment right there. I wrote this piece where I, I said, Bill Gates, I'm sorry, because it's like, like you know, I told you, I said, this is like all the things the computer industry was trying to do, but without the bookshelf full of manuals, it was just this tiniest little bit of technology, and it, it did everything it wanted to do. And I said, everything that Bill Gates is trying to do is not going to work, because this does it all with... Without any complexity, and from that I concluded they don't really want you to do it, because if they really wanted you to do it, they'd make it like this, and and so I was feeling my wheaties, feeling my oats or whatever, mm-hmm. and I said I wrote this piece, and I had this feeling always after sending these kinds of pieces, like, what did I just do? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like they're gonna really come down on me, and I get this incredible rant back from Bill Gates, and you know I've had met Bill Gates a number of times, and you can tell it was totally Bill Gates. I didn't even ask for permission. I just sent it back out. And it's like, I think a lot of people just you know, couldn't believe. And he obviously had just written it. And it's an incredible piece. You go back and look at it. A lot of the things he said would never happen happened. Mm-hmm. He said, well, we're going to sell fewer Encartas because of the net. I don't think so. Well, yeah, Encarta is gone. <laughs> it's called Wikipedia, right? Can and I
0: tell you, I checked the chronology on this in my research in terms of this whole narrative of Bill Gates getting the internet. Yeah. So this kind of, I mean, you're saying you send something out and you regret it. It, it the, the timeline kind of lines up. Like you could have been the guy that first started to poke it.
1: Oh yeah. yeah, I'm sure of it because by December
0: that's when he had the big come to Jesus meeting. Right. That's a year yeah. later. Oh, it's a year later. I because if, was... if you sent that in late '94, yeah. that's December of night of of '95. You sure? That's the 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 because uh, it's uh, Pearl Harbor Day. The oh. Pearl Harbor Day
1: speech is December of 95. Okay. That was his coming... Yeah. He's a character. I mean, you know, I give him a lot of credit for eventually... He was the only one in his position who earned it. I mean, um, you no, know, it was like I was really stimulating a lot of thinking in the tech industry at that point and um, getting quoted in bizarre ways in, in news pubs and stuff. And uh, and then I got a job at Wired uh, as a result of this, and that only amped it up even more, um, and it was a you know I I people you know I understand the rush of being a journalist. I mean, I wasn't never a journalist, okay, but I had the power of a big brand behind me, and I had believe me, nobody up at that point nobody could tell me what to write. I just wrote whatever I wanted to. Uh, later on, uh, I I quit over this, but uh, they were editing my pieces so radically that. Uh, it, it, I found myself disagreeing with my own writing. And I think there's a lot of that in journalism that, mm-hmm. that people really don't have control over what they say. But, well, by the way, shout out to June Cohn, like we said we were going to do. Oh, our, one of our, both of our favorite, I mean, one of my, whatever, best, one of my best working relationships. It was short, but uh, yeah. She was the good editor when you were working for Well, one. she was probably the only editor at the time, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. Well, then, yeah, I, I don't like to say, speak ill of people. They, they hired a lot of sort of random people. So, so is that...
0: You're describing your realizing that, that you have this voice in this platform. Okay. Is this around the time then... Because you, you run DayNet into the early 2000s, right? Or you're running it simultaneously. Yeah, you know, somebody started-
1: asked me that question. You know, it's... Scripting.com, Scripting News uh-huh. started in 97. Mm-hmm. I mean... But all this stuff, I had scripting.com because all this stuff was being archived on scripting.com. So, you know, I'd have to go back and I, but I don't, I think it was the early, you know, it might have been 2000, 2001, somewhere in there, I stopped sending out the emails. Probably a mistake, Mm. given how popular email is now. Right, yeah. But I felt like the web is is good enough and and, you know, we were starting to experiment with syndication, and, and I wanted to see where that would go, And you know. So, so initially, scripting news is what we would call,
0: like, a link blog, right? So, like, it's where you store ideas and, and oh, this is cool. But is it, when does it evolve into, now this is your new soapbox?
1: Well, um, see, I wouldn't call scripting news ever a link blog. Okay. I mean, you have to go back and look I mean, show me, maybe... Maybe, be,
0: yeah. But what I'm trying to get at is your intention was not, this is my new platform. It started out and it evolved.
1: Yeah, everything the, was evolutionary in yeah.
0: there. I mean, it was... So what's the question? The question is, and, and maybe I'm wrong, that it wasn't just, this is where I collect my various thoughts and things like that, and then it becomes this is where Dave has his voice, this is where Dave... It,
1: it was always that. Okay. Scripting News was always that, and you know I mean... It, it, I'm only aware of that now. so I'm very aware of that now because I have turned the corner back in May of this year. I went back to the model that I used. You know, Things got really screwed up because of Twitter and because of Google Reader. Mm-hmm. Those two things really screwed the blogosphere and screwed my blog, mm-hmm. screwed my thinking about this stuff, and Facebook only made it worse. Um, and then I finally decided early this year that that was crazy and I should stop doing it to just go back to what I was doing before the idea was of my blog of the blog was that it's my notepad and it's public and I just write it because these are the things I want to put in my notepad and I share it because that's just I mean I I would write this stuff even if nobody read it okay because I want to get it down and I want to remember what I thought on this particular day and um, I don't know it's just an impulse I'm na- in I'm I want to call a natural born blogger there there aren't many of us. I originally thought everybody would be blogging, and I realize it's very small number of people feel this impulse to share everything. <laughs> All and right. I'm so like... that's what my blog was. It was like a notepad, and some of the things were links. Some of the things were uh, fit in a paragraph, and sometimes they had to be longer.
0: I want to pull a couple different things out of that. Um, so I, I've had Justin Hall on the show. And he explicitly from day one was like, I'm going to share my whole life. No, he's
1: radical. I, right. yeah, Justin was wired too, so we knew right. each other back in that time frame, yes. So,
0: but you share a similar impulse in the sense? No,
1: I, I, I have a very... Uh, no, I don't. I have a very... And I, I you know, I wouldn't... What he does would I don't know if he still does it. I don't think he does. He's, he's going back to it, yeah. Yeah. I don't think that you can exist that way, seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I had... There were pretty serious problems that came from being too famous and, uh, and having so much attention and energy focused on me because when the blogosphere finally boots up and there are other people in it, at first I thought, oh well, this is fantastic. look at how it's grown. And then I go to all the different blogs and they're all talking hate about me. Mm. And it's like this is, how the, uh, this is how it's being organized around very negative shit. And people would come to my house and uh, you know and it wasn't fun have people knock on the door and say, "Hey, I just wanted to see if you really live here," you know. I never put my address on the net, mm-hmm. and I tried to, you know, keep it private. But, uh, but that would happen. And how uh, uh, can you have any personal relationships if you publish everything? Well,
0: I think that's what he discovered.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. You yeah. know, your friends don't want you to put everything about them. They're not like that. Um, and it's—I mean, it—it it makes me feel hurt just. To think about the idea of being completely vulnerable. You have to have a line, and you have to not cross it. That's, that was, I mean, I'm not saying everybody has to do that, but I, I think that, and so that's what Justin said. Huh? Mm-hmm, yeah. I, doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. I mean, you just get wounded by putting your your vulnerable, your vulnerability out there. The world's not a nice place.
0: Okay, but we're talking about degrees, because then I'm going to bring you back to that post where there's, I read it last night, you know, everyone should have a web page. Come talk to me, I'll show you how to do it. So in which, the time... Which one was that?
1: Uh, Billions of websites? Yeah,
0: exactly. So, that
1: was a big piece.
0: Right. So at the time, though, even if your thinking has evolved on it, you're thinking that the what would become mm-hmm. the blogosphere as this platform for everyone's self-expression, for conversation, oh, for, for community. For hands
1: in cyberspace. Yeah. That yeah. was the idea. Yeah. yeah.
0: So that's... That's, that, I'm not saying that your impulse was like his—that you want to share, you know, every sex conquest that he had, you know, like stuff like that. Yeah. But your idea—who
1: would want to have sex with you? If you <laughs> were doing that—I well, don't know. Actually, some people. You know. uh, not, not people I want to. Right.
0: Uh, yeah. But but so the converse is also you sharing a similar impulse, which is this is the web is this great democratizing medium where everyone can have a voice, and here I want to create an environment for these thousand flowers to bloom.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. That, that, that's, that is what I wanted to do. And But I didn't just want, but that wasn't a permanent thing. That was an initial impulse. That piece, you know, billions of websites, that was 95, <laughs> I think. I'm pretty sure. It was, 96 was a different year. We were doing different stuff. That was before we had any idea what the hell this thing looked like. Yeah. Any Any idea at all. And um, by I don't know, by 2002, I knew that that wasn't going to work. And I was meeting with the New York Times with the, the head of Martin Eisenholtz, the head of the New York Times Digital, proposing two things to him. And one of them was, "I, I want your feeds." And the other one is, um, "I want you to offer a free blog to everybody that gets quoted in the New York Times." And why the latter is because I didn't feel we were getting the quality in the blogosphere. We weren't getting people. We were getting the the sort of. You know, I told you what good. You know, CB radio was like, oh hi, here I am. That's what the blogosphere was mostly like. It was mostly. It was really mostly just a, a social club, you know, of people. The the big news is I'm here, which is totally cool. That's you know, 99% of what humanity is about is, I'm here. you know sounds mundane but that really is what our species is good at right but I I wanted newsmakers in there and um, and I thought that would be one way to get it that was the uh, reason why I wanted to go to Harvard was because I wanted to get the academics involved in this stuff and that didn't work either Uh, so but you know that holding hands in cyberspace thing it happened Facebook Mm -hmm. is what Facebook is it's what people get out of Facebook right it's a, it's a marvelous thing when it does, when, it, when that works, when you can see into people's lives in ways that, you know, I mean, there are people who I only had superficial ideas about now. that you know, I understand I'm seeing their, their best foot forward, right? right? Yeah. But there is interpolation possible. And when you get together with them, you know what to ask about because you know who's in their family and, you know, they just went on a trip to Europe right. or all that kind of stuff. Then you do get that kind of sharing. They needed more comfort, they needed to be easier. they needed it all to be taken care of and, it, and and of course it's it's not going to work out you know it's, but that's then there'll hopefully be something after that ohm so. um, uh, talked about um,
0: he was really inspired around the time of nine eleven with what things were. What you specifically, but other people on blogs were doing around that time, and 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 that jived with my own memory of it is that it was around. Actually, in my memory, it was around like the Bush Gore election, when blogs were a source of news for the first time, when people were like reporting real stories that you couldn't get anywhere else. And then after nine eleven, when the Gulf War happens and things like that, that that's when the blogosphere. Really oh yeah.
1: Well, the war bloggers. And right. All that stuff. Yeah. Right. 11 was an incredible day for. Logging. I mean, it really was. I mean, it was, uh, you know, Brian. I think the thing is that we're all looking for meaning in our lives, and there isn't a whole lot of meaning to what we do anymore. Mm. And so, that was the that was the thrill of for me of being able to make a contribution on that day because I I had access. I had, my internet was obviously, I'm in California, there's no problem there, and, uh, and you know, I've got a community, and a lot of them are in New York, and uh, and so I became a place where everybody was sending their, their pictures and their notes and all the things that they were experiencing, and I was just sitting there, typing away, just like, oh, look at that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it had this newsroom feel to it, you know, mm-hmm. I love that. that. That's happened a few times, not often enough. I've often felt we need to have like a newsroom for bloggers in every major city for every industry, uh, I call that hypercamp. I've, I've been pushing that idea for years, and um, it somehow it hasn't seemed to happen. You know, but it should happen. There should be like uh, a news space that's open to bloggers. You know, the other. F- oh, I should let you keep going, because but there is really sort of a big picture today that we should talk about. Let's do that, it. Now. That is. Let's do it now. Okay. That's sort of like, you know, the history is nice, but our world is in crisis. Mm -hmm. And any day it could blow up because of the crazy lunatic who's in the White House. So what should happen to compensate for that is people should be willing to take some risks. We should be able to change things so that um, good ideas get out there in time to actually do some good. And we haven't changed any of it. Uh, and so the news system that was suggested by the technology of blogging and not necessarily the practice of it but the technology of it um, is, is very much available and you know my frustration I've lived this the whole trolling thing I mean I could see so clearly how the news industry was blowing this and they were just like he's trolling you this isn't what you do you don't give him more, mm. you know, and they're doing that. In the meantime, I don't know, there's just, it. I feel it, I think almost everybody feels this to some degree, is, is that I want to help the world now, but they won't let me do it. And who is they? Well the A is I mean sad to say but the news system has gatekeepers and they're still in force mm-hmm. they still control what we hear mm-hmm. and um, it, it isn't as if I would be wanting to go on you know CNN or MSNBC I would probably say no if I got invited to do that because I consider them to be circuses they're they're not they're not giving me they're not giving me any information on anything that I can do I mean they're, they're they're barking up some trees that are like truly irrelevant. Uh, this whole thing about trying to catch Trump in a legal—you know—they're trying to make a legal case against him. That isn't what the news is for. That's what lawyers do. You know, you're not—they're all trying to relive Watergate, maybe. I don't know what it is, but meanwhile, the people don't have anything to do, and um, we should be doing much better uh, in communication. We should not. All we have are superficial, you know, baseball fan type conversations about this. My team versus their team. Mm-hmm. Uh, this morning, uh, uh, Ted Lieu, who's a Congressperson, uh, uh, wrote a comment to Corker. Right, Corker's the guy, the Republican who is now out there. Right, and he's he's saying, well, you know, it took you long enough. Wish you hadn't uh, supported because he's not running for re-election, so he. Well, but he's being snotty. He's saying, now you see the light. Welcome to the resistance. I go, come on. Why can't we like see some opportunities here to fix all of our problems? See, that was that would be the thing. I'm not doing this very well, but the the thing that a moment like Trump presents to us, the opportunity that it presents to us, is to fix a shitload of problems. Mm. Because we all have a reason to work with each other that we didn't have before. And uh, we should be willing to take risks that we weren't. Yet, I, what I see is everybody's still out of, in it for themselves. They're still managing their own careers. They're still looking for opportunities to become more rich, more famous. And you know, if we're all dead, that isn't going to do you any good. Right? And it's kind of disappointing. I mean, we could fix the whole fake news problem in an instant.
0: We could. All right, let's. Let you and I give me the solution. right Okay. Well,
1: we, we're putting you and I record? don't. You and I don't actually get to do this. I said we. Yes. And we means we have to be one of the news organizations. Yes. And we have to be willing to work with other news organizations. Look, the the, the way you you beat fake news is to have news channels that don't have fake news in them. Mm. So that way, you know that it's been vetted. You you know that if if. If there ever is a fake news story that shows up in this channel, it's going to be marked that later once you figure it out. So you can trust what's there. Mm. So if people, you know, I think news doesn't have a very high opinion of their, of their, their readers or their viewers or whatever. But what if you want not to read fake news? Where do you go? Well, what I say is this, is that if you're a news organization, you ought to have a list of all the other news sources that you read. So give me that list. and You also ought to have a list of all the bloggers that you read. You probably don't have very many of them, but I need you to go get some more. And I need you to help find the people who your sources do the thing that the New York Times wouldn't do and help them get a blog so that they're publishing regularly. Mm -hmm. And now amalgamate that whole thing into one river, one flow. I mean, Twitter and Facebook are abysmally bad news reading uh, devices. We, as technologists, know how to do so much
0: better than that. Because you, uh, you're such a fan of rivers. So rivers as a solution to... Rivers or Twitter. Twitter's right. a river. Right, right. Facebook's a river. Right. Except for when the algorithms are surfacing certain things. Well, wouldn't it be
1: nice if you knew what the algorithm actually was doing? Right. That my river would have that. I mean, river is not a controversial idea. We use them all the time. Yeah. Want to call it something else? Let's call it something else. Yeah. I'm not out there as wanting this. Everybody wants it. It's the natural way to read news. It's, mm-hmm. You, know, you want to see the new stuff, mm-hmm. and then you want to mm-hmm. see the not so new stuff. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it's top and down. Come right? back an hour
0: later, what did I miss? Can I
1: check in? Yeah. Give them everything they want. Let them, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not stuck on one structure. All I want is the, I think it's like the Hulu of news. Mm-hmm. You know, Hulu was thought to be like a ridiculous idea. You never compete with, I think it was YouTube they were worried about, mm-hmm. or Netflix, mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Turns out Hulu is just doing fine. It's, it was a good idea. Mm-hmm. It just mean, it meant that the entertainment industry had to work as an industry to create this solution. The news industry, for some reason, decided to cede their distribution to the tech industry. And that was a huge, huge mistake. I know the tech industry really well. And uh, the tech industry has some strengths, and there are some extremely valid approaches the tech industry takes. If it were re- tables were turned and it was reversed, and the tech industry was being taken over by another industry, but the way they were doing it was so open, the tech industry would immediately mount a competitor <laughs> and try to undercut them mm-hmm. or come out with new features or make it faster or whatever. That's the mentality of the tech industry, and it's a good impulse. For whatever reason, the news industry was perfectly willing to let them take over the distribution.
0: I think they've always had an inferiority complex.
1: Yeah, I think all of this. I think the people who had. Uh, who had some guts they all left mm. yeah i mean i had this experience one of the, when I, my very first real publishing experience with the web was the san francisco newspaper strike in 1994 right. and that was i was being schooled in the web by the writers mm. these people they they were they they anticipated that i would take their links out they said you don't take the links out I said, got it. Not Mm -hmm. taking the links out. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was like the things that were important to them were all the things that were great about the web. These people loved the web. But they were all gone a year later. Mm. I don't know. Probably went to go work for tech companies, huh? Mm. I don't know where they went. But yes, I think that the thing is that everybody that's in the news industry today, the news industry existed and was mature before they were born. Mm. So... All but the all the innovation and in news.
0: When I say inferiority complex, it's also because they were experimenting with things like video texts and things like that for thirty years and then You
1: like, know I know all about that. Yeah, I called yeah, my yeah. company Living Videotex for right, a reason. Right, right.
0: So <laughs> they, they there were smart people in the news industry that knew that this was the new
1: model. They were all corporate. That was the problem. The whole thing from always was corporate. And this is the this is like the other thing I want to talk with you about is like this, this assumption that technology has to come from corporations. Mm-hmm. That it can't come from an individual. Mm-hmm. Now this was something we we that, that the personal computer industry blew up in the early eighties. They were all individuals doing this stuff. Individuals can create great software, corporations just can't do it. So that's why all those experiments failed. They were governments, they were big corporations. They were boardroom-inspired directives. Let's go become part of the new great future in video text. So it's like today. You see all the research projects that are being spawned out of the Knight Foundation and news industry, they're all destined to fail, every one of them. They're designed to fail. If you said, well, is this going to turn into a product that people can use? No, It's more like we're kicking a ball around and seeing what we can do. Dangling our feet in the water, you know, trying almost if something did. That isn't the way
0: you do it. Well, also, if something gained traction in one of those experiments, it's almost like they would immediately drive it like a hot. They would kill it,
1: right? Of course, they would kill it because it threatens the status quo. They're very conservative. They don't want change. They want to try to keep. uh, I said this once to Jay Rosen. He got very upset with me. Jay is NYU professor, friend of mine, whatever. I said, you know. I didn't say it about him. I said it about one of his friends, but I think it's him too. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe he won't hear this. But I said it's like you're trying to take a box that's over here and pick it up and just move it over here without changing the box at all. But it's not. It can't be that way. This has got a whole different feel to it. It's a different reality. And the truth is, we all have the ability to publish at this point, but it's being tightly controlled and it's going to be destroyed. I mean, that's the other thing you got to know. All the freedom we enjoy in publishing on the net—that's all being hacked to death, and it's you know it's not being done in some of the obvious ways. I mean, the government's going to do it for sure. That's what all this fake news stuff from Facebook is about. Mm-hmm. Let's get Facebook under control. You know, mm-hmm. the hearings um, are uh, at the end of the month. Yeah. This is very, 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 very bad. <laughs> it's just—it's awful. I don't—I'm no big—I'm no friend of Facebook. I think Facebook has really looted the web. I've uh, been very. Uh, un, un, ungracious, you know, not, they, they don't know their place. That's my feeling. They're just looters. They're worse than Exxon. So I, let me get that out of the way. I don't like Facebook, but um, what's going to happen to them is nothing compared to what's going to happen to us. I mean, if there's no question Facebook's developed the censoring technology, they're just going to give it to the government. The government's going to have the little dials and knobs where they can say, well, anybody that talks about this, I want to know about it. Mm-hmm. So we can send the FBI over there to mm-hmm. tell them not to do it. You know, That's all going to happen. But Google's doing it with their push to HTTPS. Mm-hmm. It forces you to go into a hosting situation. It's impossible. You can no longer work. I mean, all the work that I'm doing on people running their own web servers, I keep doing because I love it. But it's doomed because Facebook, not Facebook, Google, mm-hmm is trying to turn the web into their private platform. And they're going to decide who gets the... They already do. Yeah, yeah. I can't use Facebook to search my own site anymore. Yeah. It's very bad at indexing because I don't use HTTPS. As if that had anything to do with the quality of my writing. It's disgusting what corporations do to to things like this. We need more individuals. I was just going to say, let's come back
0: to this idea... Of individuals creating tech. I know. As opposed to corporations creating
1: tech. Well, we can totally do it. And it, you know, it's, uh, we also need 30 people to serve as link bloggers. We had 30 people spread around the world so that there would be like, it would be 24 hours a day, and so people could take days off. And just basically, when you see a news article that any informed person would want to know about, that's my. That's my standard. I don't have to agree with it or disagree with it. It's just something that an informed person would want to know about, not need to know or whatever. And then just push that out onto a group link blog, Mm -hmm. and that's how we create the river. The river just is 30 people away from from working, and we just need volunteers to do that. They don't have to be... They just have to be people who care about distributing news.
0: Well, I I was going to say, what do you think about things like Nuzzle or something like that? In the sense that you and I... Uh, we go out and we create our 30, right? This is someone that I've learned to trust. This is my 30. It's just that not everybody has the
1: time or the interest of doing that. Right. It needs to be a product. The, the, this is the, 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 the page that you can go to where you'll get good news. has to be a product. has to be a brand. has to be promoted. People have to feel, you know, this is the place I need to go. And that's why it would be very helpful if the Washington Post or the New York Times or The Economist or some brand of news that has credibility would do this Mm -hmm. then it might work Mm -hmm. and not only would they you know i mean there's a story in the uh i think this was like 2000 but can an existing brand do that yes yes i know i'm about to tell you how it happened okay okay in 2000 i'm gonna say 2004 2005 somewhere in there There were three main news sites that that sort of dwarfed all the others. And they were MSN, CNN, and Yahoo. Mm -hmm. I was gonna say, yeah. My whole point was Yahoo. Okay, and a year later, it was Yahoo. (laughs) (laughs) And the reason why it was Yahoo is that Yahoo had my Yahoo, and my Uh Yahoo broke the rule that neither of the others would break. And I visited both CNN and MSN and, and MSN was the most provincial. Why would we ever want to do that? Point to our competitors. We'll never do that. Mm-hmm. Trust me. Microsoft says that. CNN says, well, I see the wisdom in it, but we'll never be able to sell it up. And Yahoo says, come here. We'll send you anywhere you want to go. Right. And they, and they kicked ass. It's mm-hmm. totally, I mean, they left them behind in the dust because they were providing news. The other guys were pro- pro- providing their own news it's good you know cnn well no not really <laughs> not anymore back then i think mm-hmm. they were better but i don't you know whatever they are but cnn alone isn't enough it needs to be amalgamated it has to have a chance like uh, for really great voices to be able to rise to the top people who really have ideas should it right now the only things that rise to the top are, are you know uh, memes mm. But people with ideas. It, well, we used to we used to do that. We used to create them. But well, the reason I push back on you
0: on that though is, like, I would love to see the Washington Post do exactly what you're describing. But then, wouldn't the problem be that? Uh, immediately, they have this co- existing reputation or brain. Well, the Washington Post—they're—they're they're liberal, so if, I'm not going to trust them anyway. So that's why I was saying, well, no—it has have to have 15
1: of them. It uh, has to be
0: somebody new that is untainted that uh, creates
1: the reputation. Well, that comes later. I think that right now people—well, I don't know. Yeah, sure. If, if you can figure out how to plant the idea in enough yeah. people's heads to give it critical mass. Right. I mean, you know, it's not just putting the product out there. You can put the product out there. I mean, I've done it. I did, you know. I, I didn't think it would work, but I did it anyway. I have MLB NBAriver.com, uh, dot uh, com, and all these different sites I've put together. They're functioning. They run all the time, mm-hmm. uh, but they have to be promoted. It has to be loved. People, have, somebody has to say this is. I see how this is the future, and it has to be somebody who's credible. And right now, because it it just doesn't have a chance of. of breaking through all of the, you know, confusion. I mean, you want to really get scared. There's this episode of um, Planet Money from mm-hmm. August. I think it was August. It was about what happened in Ukraine with fake news. We've only seen round one. It gets a lot worse. And the Russians perfected it in Ukraine, and they they completely drove them to the point where way past where we are now and uh, you you could not trust anything you hear on the news anywhere no matter where they found ways of hacking every part of the news if we don't develop some systems we trust now we have no hope we will not know what the hell's going on i'm not sure we do now either by the way but you know at least we're still getting some kind of information and i kind of feel like nobody's really in control of it yet Mm. but L- listen to that. I'll, I'll find a pointer. I'll send it to you. See? Send it to me. I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, because it's it'll. You have to sit down while you're listening to it because yeah. you, they, these people they, they went into this with the idea that no no I mean you can't shut off other people's ideas. You have to let them out even if we know they're lying. We still have to let them go and to the point where they realized you know a year later that was a mistake. Uh-huh. We shouldn't have let them do this to us. And it's like the thing with Trump last year. It was pretty obvious that you don't want to feed that, and yet they go ahead and do it. And whatever we're doing now does not take into account what's coming, and mm. it's for sure coming. People who think that it only happens around the election are completely wrong. They're doing it right now. Mm. They're not going to wait. They're not polite. So it's, this is the urgent thing. This is Brian. This is what this is what pisses me off. We did all this work to develop this incredible technology. It's all sitting there, waiting to be used. Mm-hmm. And the, the the news industry still thinks they're living in 1990.
0: Hmm. So if, if right. being generous, I think they're think they're living in whatever they're living
1: in. Everyone, it, all the journalists, it's not a good
0: defense. You said you said Watergate. It's all it's forever 1974.
1: Right. For they all want to be Woodward and Bernstein. Right. 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 But you can hear little hints that they might be figuring out. Matto last week was, well, she still, I love her show, I watch it it all the time, you know, it's great for scandal, gossip and all that that shit. She almost started figuring out tech, and then she backed off. How do you mean? Well, well, it's hard to explain in a sentence or two, Mm -hmm. but they've all been fixated on this idea that there's some scandal that's going to come from finding out that the Russians got help in the United States. But they don't need help in the United States. The data crosses the boundaries of countries very I see easily. Yeah, I say <laughs> you know, it's not hard. So they're fixated on this idea that they're just gonna keep poking and they'll find it. What they're making Facebook do right now is gonna cripple all of us. And it's it's not because the news industry particularly wants maybe they do. You know, they were always very dismissive of bloggers. They thought we were their competitors. Mm. This happened, I mean, you wouldn't believe the press we got. The first year, we, I was at the, uh, at the Democratic Convention in 2004. It was a big intro for blogging. I mean, The Netroots Convention, yeah. It was unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, uh, I mean, we were the big celebrities at that, and then pre- the news hated us. Yeah. And they wrote all these trash pieces about us. And I kept writing posts saying, you guys, it's like, you know, you ever see the scene? You ever see Michael Clayton in the movie? Yeah, yeah. You know, at the end of it, he says, yeah. "I'm not the guy you kill." <laughs> yeah, right. So that's what I wanted to say to them: yeah. we're not here to threaten you. We're your sources. Yeah, use us. We're here for you to use. Yeah. You don't want to read us? You don't want to quote us? No problem, but don't try to kill us. We're here for you. Yeah. I mean, this is the big thing. They, they you know, you ever, the people won't listen. That's maybe the biggest problem. People want to believe what they want, that they know, and when they see somebody publishing, they figure oh, that's competition. Yeah, I shouldn't put words in his mouth, but, you know, Duncan Black,
0: uh, Atrios, I feel like he, he was there. I was going to say, I've always felt like that was a big disillusioning moment for him, like where he really thought, okay, they're going to listen to us, and then, oh, no.
1: Nope. <laughs> yeah. Not even, you know, I, we had a party for bloggers, and I was the chief blogger for... Well, I was certainly chief blogger for Harvard at the time. And this was in Boston, and Harvard was one of the hosts. And they had a big party for bloggers. And I was like the celebrity at the party. And I go up to the president of Harvard, um his name, I can't remember right now. It wasn't Larry Summers at the time. Yeah, it was it Larry was? Summers, okay. right. I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. this is what happens when you get to be 62. <laughs> you get a senior moment like that. Yes, it was Larry Summers, and I go introduce myself to him. I said, You're, this is my party, by the way, even though I wasn't paying for it. Uh-huh. This was Democratic the Congressional Committee paid for it. You know. All the time I'm talking to him, he's looking over my shoulder, looking for somebody else to talk to. Never heard a word I said. I said, you know, we're leading here. We're doing this. This is your university that's doing all this shit. Why don't you help us out? I didn't say it that way, but though I knew there was no chance of that ever happening. You it know, only it, it, they don't accept innovation. Only very recently, after many years of insistence, have, has Harvard even acknowledged that they played a crucial role in the development of podcasting. I mean, Harvard was the, the context in which that happened and I, they don't want to they didn't want to acknowledge it i um i i'm conscious
0: of how much time i've taken up for you but I, it would be malfeasance on my part if i had you on and I'm didn't to talk talking about the history of podcasting
1: if you want to make this two or three episodes or whatever that's okay let whatever me you uh, want to do, it's cool. so
0: let's the the adam curry comes to you because you're already working with rss and he he wants yeah.
1: to, to take that into the context of what he was working on is that I don't know that he was working on it. Working on it would be very generous. Okay, <laughs> but he had an idea. Uh, somehow he, he he had an idea, and um, you know, it's a great story for, for me, From my point of view, it's a great story because uh, because it shows how hard it is to listen, and that when I say people don't listen, I'm very guilty of that myself too. You because know, who's Adam Curry? Adam Curry was an MTV star. Probably the MTV star. DJ. So in my, you know, and uh, he's like 10 years younger than me. But, yeah. But I was very much aware of MTV in the 80s when he was, you know, a star there. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first time I met him at an AOL party. Uh, David, David Cole, who was a big executive yeah, yeah. at AOL, had a party, and I met him there. And I was like, oh my god, there's a star here, you know? I was <laughs> like, <laughs> and, but I, it, it never occurred to me the guy had a brain. It just never for you know it's like this is a mistake i need to learn how to overcome this but so i was up at he had a suite some hotel up in you know around uh, Columbus circle somewhere and uh i was in new york he was in new york he was he used my software he was a an outliner guy from way back right. and uh and you know he basically used everything that i produced and showed me that and so i he was just going on and on and on and and I didn't, couldn't hear anything he was saying. I was going, yeah, sure. Right, uh, I don't understand what you're talking about. Blah, 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 blah. And then he then he showed me how he had hacked up my own code. Mm. And, you know, because we ship source code for all this stuff. And so I was like, okay, I'll have a look. I'll understand that. And I couldn't believe wh- how, that, how egregious what he did. It was just <laughs> like, it was like, I don't know how that works. How does that fucking work? I mean, but... Um, but then uh, I got the idea, and I said, oh, wow, this is actually kind of interesting. And these are, so he, he wants to, he with was talking, audio segments. He was talking about this thing called the last yard, and now they talk about the last mile. right? right. Yeah. He said, let's attach audio uh-huh. to, uh, to RSS feeds, and then um, you won't, the key idea was, you won't even know this thing. Uh, is here until it's already downloaded on your system. Right. And at this time, you know, this was 2000, or the end, yeah, it was the end of 2000. So it was almost 2001, I think. iPod doesn't come until late 2001. Whatever it wasn't had nothing to do with the iPod, right? The exactly. Tablet. But that's and my
0: point: is that it's not we're not in the world where there are handheld devices
1: for no. But we both believe they were coming, mm-hmm. and um, there were handheld devices actually. Right, uh, the, the Rio things one, like that. Yeah. No, I had one. I forget what it was called. Uh, I had a Rio riot. That's <laughs> that's the one I remember. They, they yeah. were awful, but they were out there. Yeah. Uh, and um, so. Yeah, no, you talked about the last year. already already said, oh, yeah, you wouldn't know. Right. No, I, I, mm-hmm. The problem was at that time, the internet was very slow, very slow relative to what it was today. So the click-wait problem was a real serious thing. It's like people didn't want to watch video because you'd click, you'd wait five minutes for 10 seconds of video in a tiny little postage stamp thing. It's only good for, like, G whiz. It's not video, right? And... Well, the beauty of this idea was is, yeah, it would do run in the background. It would download the stuff, and then in the morning you'd come in and you'd say, "What did you get for for me?" And you'd look at it, and when you click, big fidelity, you know, high de- high definition, you know, twenty minutes worth of programming. I mean, it solved the problem. It was it was a problem people had, you know, and so I got right on it. I went back to California, and um, I wrote both sides of it. I wrote a. Uh, um, uh, I added the feature to Manila, which was our uh, blogging platform at the time, and I added uh, the uh, and to Radio Userland. It was an early version of Radio Userland, and I added it to the aggregator in Radio Userland. So we had the publishing and the aggregating, reading and writing, and um, and I, I published a feed that had Grateful Dead songs. Every few days, I'd publish another one, and it worked. I mean, it was like another one of these things, like the web. It was like, no, there's nothing here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It just just works. That's all there is to it. And so I thought the world would explode. I thought, oh, my God, everybody would do it, right? Mm -hmm. But nobody listened to me just like I didn't listen to him, you know? Mm -hmm. They just said, oh, well, you know, Dave's doing this thing, but we don't understand what it is. And so... That's another point you made in our
0: earlier conversation about... How the best ideas often come from your users, and, and
1: your, your tendency is to not listen. That's right, yeah. you got it. So, if anybody listening to this is a product developer, that's a, a huge lesson is that, yeah, you know, just because they're a user of your product doesn't mean they're stupid. <laughs> I mean, I saw this at my company, at Living Video Text, that, uh, you no, know, I didn't have that problem. I, I knew that my think tank and more users were, were geniuses. Uh, and that wasn't a great thing by the way because it limited the market size you know, there aren't that many geniuses in the world but I learned to really trust them to listen to them and, and, and even though they may not have had the language like Adam didn't have the language you know, if he were a developer he could explain the idea to me in, in, 10, in, in, in a minute you know? but because he didn't have the language it, he could just wave his hands and just throw words out it was like a word salad it didn't make sense
0: when well, you when you see, um, especially here in New York, when you get on a train and you know that like half the people are listening to podcasts, that's awesome.
1: It's yeah, feel, uh, yeah it's a great feeling. When uh, the the but that wasn't by the way the thing that cracked the nuts on cracked the nuts cracked the nut on podcasting was it. It had I mean there were a lot of experiments along the way, and people these days the consensus is that Chris Lydon's interview of me in 2003 was the first podcast and, and I think that's fair mm-hmm. I think it probably was but I but it wasn't Chris Leiden's podcast did not uh, inspire anybody to do podcasting mm-hmm. it was only and it's because Chris's podcasts were so beautiful I mean if you ever heard, hear Chris he's the voice of NPR he's, he's a brilliant interviewer seriously very mm-hmm. patient and does his homework and his questions are very insightful and he's very respectful his interviews are remarkable he has one of the best podcasts out there right now radio open source um, now it was when I went to the Democratic Convention and had all the technical glitches and and I threw it out on my on my blog and they were awful <laughs> They were the worst people heard and yet, over time, they got more, I think they got more, it became like a serial, you know, what's yeah. up with Dave? So yeah. Dave goes driving across the country and tells a story of this or that or the other thing, just ranting, you know. That convinced people that they could do it. That's the secret. I mean, you know, Grateful Dead songs, nah, it's just technology, right? Uh, Chris Leiden, it's, that's NPR, I get it, you know, it's great. But I still think the promise of podcasting, like blogging, like all this stuff, is just people doing it. Like you. I yeah, mean, yeah. you didn't start you know, inside of a big company. It just sort of became its own thing, right? See, that is the, um, the realization of the promise in a very, I mean, all the, the trouble that blogging has right now, podcasting doesn't have it. Yeah. The thing that pisses me off about podcasting is that the people who do it don't understand why it's so great. Because it's open. Mm-hmm. because nobody can tell you you can't do it, mm-hmm. right? But if you don't protect it, and they're not doing the things that are needed to protect it, they all jump into... And if there ever were a very strong company, Apple doesn't understand it, so you know there's no trouble. Apple's not going to dominate podcasting. They've tried to any number of times, their heart isn't in it. Right. you know. Uh, if any company ever were to dominate it, all of the podcasters would become developers for them, and they would all get screwed by the platform vendor. Uh, so it's a shame because some point it, we're going to lose podcasting. Mm. But, uh, but we're people, not there yet. <laughs> no, But people should appreciate the fact that diversity of distribution you know that awkward period at the end of every podcast or the beginning of every podcast, they said, well, this is how you listen to it. Just go find a podcast player and yeah. listen to it there. Yeah. You know It's like the, the total inadequacy of those instructions, as long as we're there, we're cool. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. should always be that way. Or
0: the thing that everyone complains about podcasting, which is the discovery aspect. Why? Well, because I, because no the, yeah.
1: platform can... Well, we can solve that problem. Okay. Yeah, totally. I mean, technologically, it's an easy problem right. to solve. I solved it for myself. Mm-hmm. And I'd be happy to solve it for everybody if anybody showed any interest in it. It's podcatch.com. Mm-hmm. And you go there, click on the thing at the top, and I tell the story about what com is. I can do... Uh, collaborative filtering stuff and we can do recommendation engines, all you have to do is tell me what you subscribe to. You were kind enough to uh, put us on there early on and that was totally. very Totally. Oh, helpful. you see? You th- yeah. Thank you.
0: No, you I'm, know, I'm being dead serious.
1: I'm, no, I'm saying thank you that you yeah. noticed it. You know, the thing is, is that I would totally love it if people would put me on their PR list is when they come out with a new podcast and they want exposure for it, mm-hmm. what's the harm in sending me an email saying, here's the RSS feed, would you mind adding it to podcasts.com? Mm-hmm. If that became sort of one of the things people, the first time somebody does it, I'm going to put them in, okay? Yeah. I mean, if it ever becomes a problem that there are too many of them, then I'll finally get around to doing the collaborative filtering stuff. You know, it's I would love to do that. The thing that has to happen is that people have to care. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's frustrating to me, Brian, that, you know, I I don't like the word invent. These things are iterative, and they depend on a lot of people. So invent isn't the right word. But um, but I, I I was like the showrunner of podcasting, you know. And you put all this energy into it. And I feel like whenever I hear somebody talking about podcasting, I feel like, well, that's something I did, and that's really cool. But they don't know that. Mm. Why don't they know that? And why won't they listen to me now? When I talk about podcasting, nobody listens. It seems to me, you know, I think they just think, oh, he's a programmer, I would never understand what he's saying. I get that a lot. But I don't talk that way, so it's it's weird. Well, I was just going to, you know Marco Arment,
0: right? Yep. Yeah, so he's trying to, I feel like I really like what he's trying to experiment within his app
1: in terms of the discovery of things like that. But Yeah, Marco uh, is one of those guys that, because I don't have a product that competes with his, he doesn't listen. I've emailed with him about things about podcasting. He never replies. It's, it's total disrespect. I mean, you know, the thing is, I watched yesterday as Mick Jagger introduces the Beatles from their Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing. It was a beautiful speech. He talks about how he felt when the Beatles rose. He was very jealous. He was very upset. Of course he would be, right? Because mm-hmm. they got all the things he wanted. But when they asked him to get up there and introduce the Beatles, it brought tears to your eyes. It was so beautiful. We don't do that in tech. Hmm. We don't admire each other. We don't respect each other. We don't even use each other's products. And this is the, the terrible thing about my experience. I mean, I'm I'm nearing the end of my career in tech. I mean, it's it's for sure, you know, almost ended many times. But that is a huge regret that I don't have. A bunch of friends that I can go reminisce with about you know people who have careers that like the Rolling Stones knew the Beatles you know why don't we have why don't we encourage people to be creative with software I mean it is an art it seriously is I make so many artistic decisions when I make a piece of software I can go any number of 15 different ways I pick one because it expresses something that I want to do and if it's ever going to be an art, we have to get rid of this idea that it's only companies that can do it. And I don't have to listen to an individual. I mean, this is the podcast world right now is still at a point early enough where we should be able to tell that story. That look, you're using something that only exists because somebody decided that it should be open. Otherwise, you would be boxed in, and you wouldn't have. You'd have to sell it through them, and you know, and it would be all watered down, and there would be nothing interesting about it. People should understand that and demand it of all their technology.
0: Um, My new favorite way to end is to ask people what they're excited about today. And it can be anything. Like uh, Ohms was photography, it can be a new program, a new technology. It can be.
1: That's a hard one. You know, you should have told me you were going to ask that question. That would have given you a really good answer. (laughs) But off the top of my head, what am I excited about today? Mm-hmm.
0: What did Obim say? He likes photography. He's gotten deep into photography, and he he likes the concept of photography and, and the idea that you know all of a sudden this is the this can be equal any SLR camera in the world.
1: Well, he takes beautiful photos. Yeah. I and I'm a uh, my quality my photos are like my podcasts. <laughs> I mean, it could be. It, I know. No, you no. Know. no I, I right now this minute today. Yeah. I'm finally relearning how to program SQL databases. <laughs> That's that qualifies. It, it's it's it is an eye opener. I mean, it's something that I've put off for years. Um, you know, to be honest, it's like Podcatch. is such an answer to so many questions, and there are so many things like it that I would like to do. And in order to pull that off, I have to have a SQL database. And so I decided that it's no longer. And the, I've used the SQL databases in two products that I've done. Uh, and, um, but I've never done the programming. And so I decided if I'm going to ever explore any of these ideas, I need to get comfortable with it. And so it's actually, there's a real feeling of accomplishment there. But that's only going to be there for a few more days. I'm going to get, because it's going to be solved. Uh-huh. And it's not that hard. And I did once know how to do it. So it's not like I'm learning things from um still a perfect answer. You think it's perfect, but I, yeah. I want the really perfect answer. <laughs> and I'm only going to think of it tomorrow. But I'll send you You know email. what you can do? Record me a, record me a voicemail with I, your I, answer. I, for I that. love doing that. Yeah. I, I send voice memos to people. It's like personal podcasts. And uh, I just scatter them out there. People really listen to those. I, I, I enjoyed mine. Oh, that's right. I sent you yeah, one. Yeah, I enjoyed true. mine. I'm going to save it. <laughs> well, you can put it up on your website if you want. Yeah. So are we done? Dave, thank you. No, thank you very much. I mean, really. I, sincerely... Thanks for,
0: li- thanks for listening. Well, you're, you've are you been a hero of mine. Um, the more I do this, the more I meet my heroes. And it's a fantastic conversation. See, thank you so much. Uh, you're a role model. That's awesome. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out rate and review us on iTunes because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings and the more great reviews we get the more people will discover us as always there's more info on our website www.internethistorypodcast.com the show's twitter handle is at nethistorypod and my personal twitter is at brianmcc thanks for listening